Use code JACK250 to get $250 off to the BlockWorks Digital Asset Summit. It's in New York in September, and ticket prices are only going up. Link is in the description. I am joined by Paul Latronica, Managing Director and Portfolio Manager at Advent Capital. Paul, great to have you on for guidance. Hey, Jack. Thanks for having me on. It's a really pleasure to be here. The pleasure is all mine, Paul. You are an expert in convertible bonds. That is a part of the market I don't think is well understood by a lot of people, and it can be superficially complex. And But I think that it's what goes on in that market really sort of reverberates throughout uh, every, every part of the market because it's fixed income as well as equity. So when rates go down and equity prices go up, you, convertible bond prices and their values and what's going on there is being affected by uh, both sides of sort of the stack. So they're, they're sort of in the middle between fixed income and equity. Uh, ex- briefly explain what a convertible bond is and in what way do they differ than stocks and bonds and sort of, you know, how do they, how do they trade as well? Sure, sure. And, and uh, a lot of things you said is absolutely true. Um, it, you know, converts are kind of a derivative product because they have both, uh, you know, uh, aspects of debt as well as equity. So if you think, break it down, what a convertible bond truly is, it's, it's debt of a company. A company issues it into the marketplace. Um, it pays coupon semi-annually like any other piece of straight debt. And it has a set maturity. Um, the only difference is when this security is issued into the marketplace um, for reasons that, the, you know, that, that, that why people issue converts for those reasons. Um, the company is willing to give the investor you know, a certain amount of fixed amount of common stock. Right. So in the life of that bond, the pricing or the valuation gets influenced at certain points by either the equity value, the option value or the fixed income value. Right. So convertible bonds can be very different characteristic wise, depending on where the equity is trading at any one point relative to where it's issued. So if you think about options and how options work. Right. A bond is issued and has a strike price of a $35 strike price on an option and the stock is trading at 30. Right. It doesn't have that much like it has correlation to the underlying equity, but it's not like a one for one correlation. So if that equity price is to move higher, go through that strike and move up the curve and say trade at 40 or $50. Now that equity option is in the money and it trades one for one with the underlying stock. So if you think about convertible bonds depending on where that option is, right? The characteristics are extremely different. So an out of the money option, the bond is more influenced by the fixed income value, right? What's the yield to maturity of a double B industrial company or double B tech company for three years out? So that bond will trade to a discount to par uh, with a yield. Conversely, that stock is moving higher up up the chain and now this equity option is through the strike and in the money, now, this bond is going to trade highly correlated. The word delta, the, the correlation to the underlying equity, will have a very high, a higher delta and be much more correlated to the underlying equity moves, right? So that would have more equity characteristics. So one of the confusing things that people you know, have or confusing things about the market is how do you treat a bond or convertible bond? Like uh, you can't treat them all the same way because the risk characteristics are very different just depending on what point of the curve that option is sitting. So strip it out, basic, it's straight debt, 
pays a coupon, has a maturity. The only difference is that it has an equity option attached to you, um, attached to it, that can just that that has that has different uh, impacts on the valuation. Um, different than straight debt, converts if the equity option is out of the money, will eventually mature par outside of any credit event within the in the company, right? There's no default. There's no credit event in the, the years to maturity. That bond will mature at par. But unlike other straight debt, it doesn't have to mature at par because the investor um, at, at that point, at that point as you're approaching maturity, really has the choice to decide, you know, what's worth more at this point? Is it the equity portion of, of the, the bond that I own or is it the fixed income portion? Because um, ultimately, the fixed income portion will, will mature at 100 or, or you know, 1,000, the face value. But if that stock is worth more at that point, the investor can make the decision to convert, and that bond can be worth you know, 160, 170, 200. So unlike traditional debt, the bond can have a lot more upside, which is obviously correlated to the underlying equity. Right. So let's take let's take it a, a mock example. So I'm just going to pick a company, uh, IBM. And if you want to talk, if you want me to pick a different company, let me know. Um, I had to convert in the, in the past, so that's fine. Good. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So they sell a bond at a thousand, and they issue they they had it has an option attached to convert to 800 shares. So if the yeah. current price is 136, that's the spot price right now of the spot price of the of the stock 136. Would the strike price of the option be out of the money? Would it be higher? Would it be like 150, 160? What sort of thing would it would it look like? Well, so so a, a company issues a, a a bond. It has a thousand dollar face value. Underlying that bond is eight hundred. I'm just going to forget about. It. I'm just going to say eight hundred dollars worth of stock. In the course of the life of that bond, right, the stock can move higher, can move lower, or do nothing, right. So five years to maturity, you have a thousand dollar bond. With eight hundred dollars of stock, say the stock doubles in that period, right? You come to the maturity point. It's a bond. It's going to mature at par. Do I want to put this company back to the company and take put this bond back to the company and take my thousand dollars, or since it's doubled, I have sixteen hundred dollars worth of stock, right? Do I convert that and take the sixteen hundred dollars? Of course, I take the sixteen hundred dollars, right? Yes. Nothing happens to the stock in the period it's issued, right? Stock goes low. Nothing happens. Doesn't change. It you know, opens at 100, closes at 100. You'll get your coupon. You'll get your par back at maturity. The stock drops by 40% in that period. Because it's straight debt, you will get your coupon and you got to get par back at maturity. The beautiful thing on this and why you, if you look over history, converts have more equity-like returns versus you know, fixed income, even though they're fixed income um, um, instruments is the fact that you have that equity option that protects on the downside, where if the stock doesn't perform, but if the stock performs, you're going to participate in that growth over the course of that debt being outstanding, right? So you're getting an equity option on a piece of debt, and you have the ability to participate in the growth of the underlying issuer. Unlike debt, unlike straight debt, where you're just going to get the coupon and part mature. Right. So when you said $800 worth of stock, was that assuming a sort of delta of one, or is that uh, based on the conversion price, right? Because if, and, and also is the conversion price, when you when you buy from a primary issue, not secondary, right. from a primary issue, do you, when you buy a convertible bond, is the strike price or the conversion price typically higher than the current price of the stock? 
Correct. Correct. And that's exactly why it's interesting to companies to issue this kind of debt, right? Yeah. Uh, a tech company wants to issue, needs to raise capital. They go to bankers and what do bankers say? Okay, maybe we can issue stock tomorrow. Let's issue $200 million worth of stock or we can issue a convertible debt. So what's what's the, the positives, negatives of each? If you issue stock, you're going to have to issue at a discount, maybe 10, 15% from where it's trading currently. I'm also selling into the same investors, the same investor group that currently are sponsoring my company. If you issue a convertible debt, well, here's your ability to issue debt, spread out your balance sheet, access different investors, and now you're selling that stock, not at a discount to where it's currently selling, but a premium, right? Mm -hmm. So you'll sell that stock at 30, 40% above where it's currently trading. But what's the trade-off of that? For, for the investor, for me as an investor, I take a lower coupon, right? Because with that, I'm getting access now to five years of potential growth in this company. And for the, for the, for the uh, issuer, right, it's a lower coupon. It's accessing different markets. And it's just diversity within their balance sheet. Right. But, but so this is an advantage for investors like you. But a disadvantage for companies is that if they just issue the pure stock and IBM goes from 136 to 100, you participate in that loss. But you, as a convertible bondholder, you you only get the optionality on the upside. So that that makes it uh, seem like you know there there are things of convertible bonds that can, can seem very attractive to investors. But I imagine yeah. you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch in that you pay for it. Like right, you, you know you you have you to pay, pay for that conversion, right? You pay for it with a reduced coupon, right? So what we say is these bonds have what you call positive asymmetry. You have a defined downside outside, barring any type of bankruptcy or credit event. You have a defined downside of, of 100 cents on the dollar, right? Your upside will be unlimited based on where it trades. So if you look at like discount convertible bonds and you're able to buy bonds at 85, 90 cents on the dollar, like your downside is basically the accretion to par and your positive return of the debt. Your upside is going to be that equity option kicking in. And give you excessive value, uh, you know, over the time to maturity, which is three to four years out, right? So it becomes an interesting positive asymmetric um, investment proposition, and you're tending to access growthier companies, companies that have those trajectories that potentially, you know, are gonna put these options in the money in the future, right? So right. an issuing company, they trade off, like when an issuing company will basically be selling volatility of the market, okay? Selling volatility of the market is something that they can't value on their balance sheet. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's something that they have based on the movement of their underlying equity price. And the higher volatility, the higher percentage that the company can sell that strike price or convertible debt above where the stock is. Uh, where the stock because is. it's an option and, and implied higher, the implied vol. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So what you'll tend to see in our marketplace is you'll have younger, innovative type companies Growthier companies that are utilizing that kind of resource of volatility, which doesn't sit anywhere in a balance sheet, but it's something that's free to them. And they'll sell that to the market in return for a lower coupon, lower interest expense. So at that point of growth, that pivotal point where they need their capital, they're not sending out these big coupons to, to, uh, to investors. They're able to hold on to it. Their trade-off is that, look, if the stock doubles or continues to go, it will basically be converted and it'll be dilutive at a higher level. But the other alternative was either selling that stock at a discount, which would have been dilutive anyway, 
um, or go into a straight market, which one may not lend to them because the companies tend to have, you know, less big capital, like less big, uh, uh, you know, uh, um, materials and, and, and capital structures. Um, they tend to have a lot of IP, tech heavy type stuff, um, but they have a lot of growth in the, pro in the prospects. So people are willing to lend to them based on their growth prospects um, and just based on the, uh, you know, the current operating of, of the underlying companies. Yeah. So, so Paul, there are qualities of convertible bonds that are attractive for investors. And as a result, they're you know, somewhat unattractive for issuers. In other words, like what, why do you, why am I giving you this sort of optionality? So there's, you know, in the insurance, there's this, and I guess economics, there's this concept of adverse selection. So if you're selling car insurance, um, you know, I'm, the, you're selling extreme uh, crash crash insurance for, for sports cars. Like, I'm not going to buy that crash insurance unless I think, oh, I'm going to crash my car, right? So the people who are going to be extremely good people to insure are not going to be banging down your doors. Uh, you're, you're only going to get people like me. Likewise, if I'm, let's say, this super innovative company and everything's going well and, you know, I'm making a billion dollars a year and, you know, like uh, Bill Gates' family office is trying to call me to, to invest and I'm just not picking up the phone, like I, I'm likely not going to be doing a convertible bond, right? You uh, framed it in a way that highlights the positive. You said uh, growth companies uh, have a, you know, companies that have a big potential for growth and that's attractive to equity investors. But you know, isn't it true that fixed income investors, they're interested in safety and they like to lend against collateral. So typically a company that is speculative and you know, we can get into names later, um, you, you know, a company that is you know, losing hundreds of million dollars a year, um, at least you know, in net income terms, maybe if not adjusted EBITDA terms, and you know, they don't have a ton of uh, uh, collateral that can be lent against, those are the companies that would be selling convertible bond. Why are they selling convertible bond? Because the they don't want to dilute their equity and and the, they can't really sell debt unless at a very very high coupon right so you know to, to what degree push back on me paul put me in my place and say, say you know is what i said unfair is there a grain of truth to it there's this misnomer that you know it's it's death financing it's the last option for companies to come to the marketplace um but i think that's that's exactly it's it's something of the of the past where that was you know, the, the last the last option a company had bring to the convert market. I think now what you're seeing is because of the way the world is changing so rapidly and, and, and things and technology are changing so rapidly that the traditional company, I mean, a lot of the S&P companies are not these, you know, uh, plant and material heavy companies that access the, 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 the high yield or straight debt markets. It's innovative technology. And when I'm saying that, we're not talking about these like, uh, you know, uh, you know, pre-funded, uh, you know, early SPAC type situations. Um, you're talking about companies that have, you know, large revenue bases, investing in sales and investing in growth. And on the other side, you're, you're talking about, you know, established companies that are just expanding what type of capital they're they're uh, they're raising, whether it's airlines or cruise lines or or, or retails and consumer type companies, names that everyone knows. Um, just utilizing the product for for those uh, for those reasons, just to, to 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 gain capital and expand their balance sheet and expand the markets um, that they're accessing. Um, so I would push back at you and just saying that no, it's not these end of life companies that need financing at any cost. They're companies that tend that tend to have really innovative, smart leaders, smart CFOs um, who understand that there are different ways to finance the business going forward 
not just selling equity right here, right now. Right. So these options have been created over the years with you know, bankers structuring all different types of uh, vehicles and converts have you know, been innovated over the years really to, to address that part of the marketplace. The part of the marketplace that would basically be raked over the coals to go to a straight debt market or not even considered. Right. Um, and, 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 you know, the market has really over the years um, funded some companies like a lot of innovative companies. Um, well, back you know, from the early days to today. Right. Yeah. So I, I don't, I didn't mean to suggest end of life companies, a company that's about to go bust. And they, they suggest, I meant companies that are, you said growth, but I guess the other way of putting that would be you know, somewhat speculative where they sort of need the money. They might be money losing. Like, I, I don't know if I'm just picking a name out of the hat, but Uber, like is a giant successful company, but it's, you know, it doesn't make money. I, I think maybe adjusted EBITDA, maybe they made money one one quarter or something. But you know, those, those types of companies, right? Like Apple, Tim Cook, he's buying back stock. He's extremely defensive of his equity of, of the shares that's here. He wants that number to go down. And if you buy or you know, a convertible bond investor buys a convertible bond from Apple, and Apple goes up because the price of Apple tends to go up the stock, then the, Apple gets diluted, right? So there, there's something of you know, t- t- tell, tell us a little bit about the, the sorts of companies. Like there are those t- sorts of, you know, DraftKings-like companies, right? Sure, sure. You, you have those type of companies that are like finding their way towards profitability. And then you have those type of companies, like you've mentioned, you know, Uber, Lyft, they're in our marketplace. Um, the one thing that is interesting about a lot of these names is if you look at the market, 70% of the market has market caps above 5 billion, Right. There's a perception that it's a small cap market. Um, it's not right. like when you look at the broad base of it, um, it's not, you know, it, it, it really, go, you know, runs the gamut of capitalization. Um, so just as, as a disclosure, I mean, names I name, they're in the marketplace. We may, we may not own them, yeah. um, but I'm not promoting them in any way. I'm just kind of giving you a taste of like what's in the market. Um, you know, uh, you talk about the airlines, uh, Spirit Air, JetBlue. Uh, Air Canada, they all accessed the market over the last several years. Um, a Dick Sporting Goods, a Cracker Barrel, a Cheesecake Factory, right? Yeah. Diversification. And then you go over to your Twitters and your Snapchats and your, your right. social media names that earlier on in life needed funding um, when, again, like market cap was there, growth was there, um, but profitability was maybe a year or so out. You know, and, 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 and really what the key is when you're investing in these securities as you approach it from a credit perspective, right? Because you've got to look at this as debt instruments, which have equity kickers or equity options that are strapped onto them, right? Because ultimately, the protection in the security comes from the credit hold it up over the course of that investment, right? The additional upside, the equity-like upside comes from making that credit investment and then the story or the, the, the growth of the company kicks in, the profitability kicks in, and then that equity increases and drives that greater return, that equity-like return over time. And as I mentioned earlier, you look at convertible returns, like Bank of America did a study back to 1973 forward, they look more in line with the S&P versus high yield and, and other fixed income indices, right? Has more of an equity-like return, even though you're investing in the security of straight debt, right? So it's mm-hmm. an equity option that kicks in over time. Um, so. You know, when it goes from, you know, consumer names to technology names to transportation, um, you know, Airbnb, bookings, holdings, the travel names, 
Um, there's a big diversity, big diversity in market caps. Paul, so earlier on you said that there's a nature that once the option is not really in the money, it's not as correlated to the equity price, right? Because right. if something is extremely in the money, it essentially is the stock and the stock is going to be correlated to the stock. But when the uh, uh, equity option is out of the money, it's going to trade more like a bond. Uh, can you speak to that correlation? Because I imagine there are a lot of times, and I think we've seen this over the past two months, where as stock prices rise, interest rates fall and credit spreads narrow, right? So is it to what degree is it sort of, uh, they're quite correlated to each other, you know? Cause like if, if you, there is a company that issued a convertible bond and it goes bankrupt, that it's, you know, of course the stock's not gonna go down and the bond went down too. So they're, they're somewhat correlated, right? Correct, correct. Um, so look, I mean, the market gets divided in two pieces. It becomes a fixed income portion, a fixed income market. Those bonds that are trading at a bigger premium out of the money option, that are trading at a big discount to the issue, issue price of 100. So bonds trading in the 60s, 70s, 80s, those are more of a fixed income-like security. And we look at that as more as enhanced fixed income, right? It's a diversifying way of getting fixed income exposure, um, but very different than what you would allocate in a high-yield bucket. Um, you have technology, healthcare, consumer, which is very heavily represented in the convertible world relative to energy, industrial, media, you know, telecom, which is in, in, in the high-yield world. Um, and then that other part of the market, which is more of like a low volatility equity, right? Because you have that delta, because you have that attachment, that 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 uh, option correlation, as the stock as the stock moves up, it'll be high more highly correlated as that option goes in the money, right? So on the lower end, it's more effect, enhanced fixed income with a lower equity correlation. In the upper end, it's more of a, a low vol equity type strategy, and that's how you kind of divide the market. To really, you know, uh, be attractive to different participants, different investors, right? Some can use it as a fixed income substitute. Others can use it as a low vol equity. Um, so when you're thinking about how the market moves and how the securities work, when you have those big pullbacks in the market, you get more representation in that discount part of the market. More discount bonds, more bonds that are trading closer to their fixed income value, right? Strip out the convertibility. This bond is basically you know, straight debt. What's the yield this should trade to, right? And that really attracts more of a fixed income crowd. Um, conversely, when you have equity markets moving higher, like you had in the back end or the early end of 2021, and like the market becomes more equity-like, and and it takes on more of that equity-like uh, uh, profile um, as those options go in the money and the deltas of the market or the individual securities get higher. So depending on where that bond is in the curve, it will attract different types of investors um, who, who are just looking for different objectives, right? But the key to converts, as I said, I've mentioned this already, but it's equity-like returns over time, but with a much different risk profile, a lower risk profile than straight equities, than owning straight equities. Why? It's because when that equity loses value, right, you don't lose as much in the fact that you're basically stopped out at par, right? If you buy a bond at a premium, you're basically stopped out at par. If you buy a part of the discount, you're basically going to have that accretion to par for a positive yield to return. So I see you brought up the old traditional uh, convert, uh, convert, uh, which we call it the uh, graph here. Um, and it really breaks the market down um, into the two parts, which are the, um, the uh, valuation points, what values you convert and how a convertible price acts over these periods. So that middle line where it says bond value, 
right? That represents the fixed income value of a security. No convertibility. It's straight debt. It's got to trade at a certain yield to maturity, right? Whatever this, this uh, credit is, it's got to trade to this yield to maturity. That diagonal line coming across your screen, I think it's a green diagonal line, that represents the value of the stock underlying each bond or the bond in this, in, in this uh, particular situation. And then the yellow, the orange line that comes across, that's how a convertible bond acts at any two points. So if you start in the middle of this page where it says, I say start where it says convertible price and you start moving up to the right, the green dotted line, which represents what? The equity value starts to converge with the value of the convertible. This is a bond with the options going way into the money, right? The stock is working, it's ripping, and now the bond is trading at a very low premium, no premium, and the option is going to trade almost one for one with the stock. Conversely, you come down to the left and you see that orange line starts to, 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 to kind of level off where you hit that bond value, but the stock is continuing to fall, right? So here, the bond valuation is breaking away from the equity because the equity is losing value, but your, 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 your value and your security is being held up by the fact now that this is a fixed income instrument, that it's a fixed income value that's going to hold up. So it's going to dampen losses. It's going to protect your downside, even if you got the stock wrong. Even if you bought this and the stock goes down, you will have a, like, the, the, the bond will start losing value. You go over to the stream left when you're talking about distressed. This is, this is a whole different part of the market where now we have a credit event occurring. And the bond floor starts to deteriorate because the credit of the underlying company starts to deteriorate. So this on the far left where it says distressed, I think idiosyncratic credits, this is the point when you have that fall off in equity value along with credit value. So this is that plunging distress type security. But the sweet spot, the more asymmetric spot becomes in this area between credit sensitive and balanced securities where you have that positive asymmetry where you invest in a security and it will outperform the stock on the way down by losing less, but eventually one for one move with the stock on the way up, right? So there, there's the upside capture and then there's a downside capture, which will be less. So over time, you make more on the way up, you lose a little more, you lose less on the way down. Over time, that string of returns is going to be much more advantageous than, than say just straight fixed debt, but much more like much more advantageous than even equities over time, right? Because on these big pullbacks, there's a there's a cushion to the pullback in your underlying security valuation. And again, as long as you're avoiding these things that are falling in this distressed level, the things that are falling off hard. But to mention that, if you look at defaults in general in our marketplace, um, like you know, historically we went back to I think the, the early '90s, um, convert defaults around one percent, and that's relative to high yield and even leveraged loans, which is approximately three percent. Right? So it's a much lower default rate within our marketplace. And there's a few interesting reasons why that is. Um, and, 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 you know, some of you, like you hit on it earlier, um, that, you know, companies that come to the convert market, um, they tend to have like light balance sheets, right? And convert can be the only issue that they have, only debt that they have in their balance sheet. So there's over, there's a large percentage, about 52% of convert issuers where the convert's the only debt, right? The interest expense is much lower. If you think about a traditional default, like in a, in a high yield name or, or heavy capital structure name, that default usually occurs with a missed coupon payment or something. Well, convert companies, again, lighter balance sheet, um, not a heavy interest expense. Well, they can tend to try to work this out prior to that, that point of you becoming current on that bond. 
When I say work this out, they can restructure convert. They can issue stock. There's many things they can do that, that, that can, you know, solve the maturity coming up, um, you know, opposed to what would happen in the traditional credit market. Um, so convert issuers tend to, you know, converts tend to be the only debt on the balance sheet. It's low interest expense. Um, and, uh, and overall, you know, that part of the market, that part of distressed market um, is, is, is much lower representation. Is that something that you typically try and avoid? Is a, is a company that has a lot of debt on its balance sheet already? And then also just looking at this chart between distressed, credit sensitive, balance and equity sensitive in those four zones, which do you specialize in and why and to what degree, you know, if you're in the credit sensitive spectrum, how is that different than the folks who are maybe, you know, down the hall from you who are trading the equity sensitive stuff? Yeah. So look, um, yeah. So in, in my firm, we do focus on both the credit sensitive and the balance portion of the marketplace. And there are two distinct products that we have out there. And um, and what we're trying to do really is is appeal to different investor sets. So if you're looking at the credit uh, sensitive portion of the marketplace, you really are creating a portfolio of fixed income instruments with three and four year options attached onto them, which can give you uh, I guess a, a more a, a different type of return profile than say just owning a portfolio of straight debt, right? One of the things I haven't mentioned yet is you know a big thing in fixed income obviously is duration. What's your duration yep. exposure, and and how is your portfolio going to react when rates are rising? Um, a typical convertible portfolio has a two point two year duration. So you own, yeah, you own a portfolio of, of, of fixed income instruments, but a short duration. Right. If you look at like the ag, it's uh, what a five, five, six year duration. Um, obviously, government bonds even longer out. High yields around four or five years. So it has different drivers of that return. Um, so within this credit sensitive part of the market, this is where I, I invest for my client base, and it's really attractive to two groups. Right. It's the the institutional account that's looking for diversity or enhanced fixed income type solution. Right. Some way to uh, to, to adjust. There uh, or some way to enhance their fixed income returns, utilizing fixed income instruments, low volatility instruments, um, you know, low standard deviation, um, but gives them excess returns over the cycle. Um, additionally, another part of the of the market that's very uh, that's attractive to this part of the market is is typically the the wealthier individuals, private wealth groups. Yeah, because right? it's a strategy that's investing um, on a credit basis with the the idea of preserving capital with a very de defined downside utilizing this convertible instrument. And the defined downside is the credit floor, but the outsize upside comes from your sourcing three and four year options that are strapped onto this, these bonds that at this point in their life, they're less valued by the market because they're out of the money, right? The oh, traditional yeah. convertible investor really looks for that higher correlation to equity. Um, this credit sensitive part of the market is just less, it's, it's, it's just less trafficked in. So the profile is really just, you know, investing in securities that have limited downside in the shorter term, but have a large potential upside because these stocks tend to be out of favor. The bonds are trading at discounts. And again, the worst you're going to do is bond accretes to par and you collect your, your coupon and the bond accretes to par from the point of purchase. And the best, and what we often see, it's this equity where the option has fell out of the money, the stock is the, 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 you know, dep uh, depreciated precipitously, whether it's earnings call or whether this recent macro sell-off. Yeah. Um, yeah. These equity options have fallen out of the money, but 
look forward two, three years from now. I mean, are they going to these stocks going to be trading at the same spot? There's a good chance that's not going to be, right? There's a good chance there's some value in these options that can be unlocked over the three to four year period to these bonds maturities. So it's an interesting way to source fixed income securities and long dated options attached to them, not trying to be complicated because those options just sit within the structure, right? right. So it's not, and, and, and to try to go replicate that, very difficult. I mean, one, you can't really find three and four year options out in the marketplace and the volatility you're going to pay for that. It's off the charts, right? You yeah. can't source that. So here you're buying very cheap volatility, a fixed income instrument um, with the potential for outsized returns, but with the protection of you'll have a slight positive return to par, right? Some positive return to par. And that part of the market now has become extremely interesting as obviously with all you know, credit instruments, the all credit markets, um, the yields have expanded somewhat, right? And so a portfolio of these credit instruments could yield you know five, six, seven percent, and you have options on equities that you know have dropped precipitously in the marketplace. So this is a real, uh, is a part of the marketplace that again less, uh, less trafficked, um, but has become more and more attractive to certain groups of investors. Paul. The last time we spoke, it was during the heat of battle. Uh, it was all risk assets had plummeted. It was pretty close to mid-June, the absolute bottom for the S&P 500. Since then, the S&P 500 has rallied something like 17%. We're now recording on August 16th. And at that meeting in June, when I first met you, you said, Jack, this, uh, you said something, you said, Jack, 65% of the convertible space now trades at below par. It's the biggest I've seen in my 25 year career. And you were extremely bullish at that time. Correct. And uh, over the past two months, risk assets have rallied and you know equities have gone up, credit spreads have narrowed. So I, I bet convertible bonds have, have done uh, well as well. Why, yeah, tell us why do you think equity prices or convertible prices were so dislocated at the time? To what degree were they representative of the fundamentals with credit spreads and equity prices? And then, yeah, what, what's the past two months been like? Yeah. So, look, I mean, interesting anomaly in the marketplace, and, and it really has to do with kind of the whole uh, impact COVID had on our market um, and, and the point leading to where we are today. So COVID hits March of 2020, everything shuts down and, you know, basically the world comes to a stop, Right. A lot of companies are not really built to, to, to work with no revenue and, 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 uh, and, and, and in a shutdown mode. So quickly after you had kind of that liquidity insertion from the Fed, you had a lot of companies looking to access the marketplaces. So they issued debt, they issued converts, and the converts came in, in size. So over the course of the last two years, the market expanded considerably um, with over two years of 160 billion plus of new issuance coming to our market. Initially, starting out with the, you know, the the retailers and the and, and the transportation type companies like the Dick Sporting Goods and the Blooming Brands and the the Burlington stores who needed capital just to run the business at that point, right? Market shut down, revenues go to zero, um, and then that was followed by technology companies and 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 additional type consumer companies. Or as the process went on, that they look there's there's uh, you know this big shift of you know, we were in, in, in an office environment. Now we're home. Software companies are expanding, you know, pretty strongly. Um, the technology is being adapted. We need money to continue to you know, improve what we're doing. Um, you know, and, and that was a big move 
on the back end of that. So the market diversified, the market grew, right? And uh, and then from there, uh, you just had this just expansion of players within our marketplace because now you had this this larger opportunity set. A market grew over 600 billion in size, which is very large historically. The last time we hit that point was probably back in the early parts of 2007. Um, and it just attracted different types of investors. You had a question? Okay. Yeah. So the last time you said it was 2007? Yeah. 2007 was the point we got to that size in the marketplace. Correct. Over time, converts have always been used as kind of like this, this mechanism for companies who are, are kind of newer to the world and, and, and to, uh, you know, uh, you know, fund their growth, fund their expansion. And like we've, uh, you know, internally we have a, a, you know, we call him the professor, uh, uh, someone who used to work with us now re uh, retired from the firm who uh, they, uh, you know, they, they look back historically and going back to the 1800s, you know, converts were used in the railroads, right? You had these, these innovative transportation companies looking to expand out West and they needed money. They used convertible bonds, right? You go forward into the early 1900s, it was American Telegraph and Telephone, AT&T as we know it, General Electric, um, uh, Westinghouse, names like that, technology names like that. But now you come forward over the years, the convert market's always kind of been this retail-y, you know, 50 billion or so size market until a real change occurred in the 1980s where basically bankers just like were looking at the product and they started to get more innovative. And early innovation came where, in general, bond markets were becoming more tradable. They were becoming more open to more daily trading and volumes, where historically you'd buy a bond and hold it to maturity, right? That's, that's how the bond market worked. Now they become trading instruments where people were moving out of them a bigger size. And then, uh, you know, one of the houses, Merrill Lynch, saw this opportunity to create a product that would be more institutionally friendly. Right. And that was I mean, that was called the Lions product, which is a, an acronym for the uh, liquid yield option notes. Right. And what this did was it created this whole marketplace where companies can come to the market. They would issue original issue discount, discount convertible bonds. Um, and the traditionally, these bonds would have 20, 30 year maturities. Right. But what they did differently here is they put puts in along the way. Right? They restructure this product. They put puts in along the way. So me buying a 20-year credit, that's really difficult. That bond's going to be very volatile. But now that you have a three-year put, well, that's interesting, right? Because you have an accretion to the bond of the original issue discount. It's going to accrete to a certain put price, which was higher than the offering price. But you also have that equity optionality, which created that floor to the bottom side. And how, yeah, and how common is that for instead of getting a call – options in the convertible, you get a put. How, how common is that? Some securities are still built this way, where you have puts as well as calls. Okay. But no, so that product itself started a, a larger institutional following, right? And then the market exploded the upside and became a more of an institutional investing type scenario. So now fast forward to where I got involved in the marketplace 25 years ago, um, a gentleman in that group at Merrill spun out of Merrill Lynch after about 12, 13 years of, of running that desk and being one of the top sales producers, his name is Tracy Maitland. He jumped out and he started Advent Capital where he saw this institutional um, demand for the product, but no one really servicing the product, no one really selling the product in like a in a management way, right? Asset managers out there selling the product as a standalone product. 
Um, so initially, you know, the, the, the market was, you know, I joined in, what was it, 1997, right prior to, you know, that, that whole run in technology and, and, and dot-com bubble, dot-com burst area. And, you know, people would be surprised. I mean, Apple had a convertible back in the day. Amazon, right, when they were a book company. They issued three convertibles over the lifetime. And there was one point people were afraid that we weren't going to get paid back, right? Amazon, how can you even believe that? But those were the type of companies that were moving into the market. Um, so as the product got more institutionalized, more players got involved, mutual funds got involved, ourselves, outright managers got involved, and larger asset managers got involved. And we're really selling this into like, you know, the traditional circuits, the traditional pension allocators, endowment allocators. And, and, and different retail platforms, and the market itself began to grow on itself, um, hitting a height in about 2007, prior to the great financial crisis, which pulled back. Um, in that period, you know, converts pull back pretty hard, right, with the rest of the market, but managed strategies tend to hold up much better than the broader marketplace, especially if you looked at it through the eye of the credit perspective, right, the credit perspective of the names that held up in that period. Um, on the back end recovery through that financial crisis, on the back end of the financial crisis, the convertible market, given the fact that you had both credit and equity, you know, driving valuations through the back end on the upside, um, gained back all of its losses uh, towards the back end of 2009, where it took the S&P, I think, uh, like, you know, what, 2012, 2013, just to break even. So the convertible market came out of that in a pretty strong manner. Um, since then, you know, there was ebbs and flows with different types of things going in the market where it came to, you know, issuance and companies coming to the market. Um, there was a point where a lot of REITs used the, used the product, different types of technology companies, consumer companies. Um, and it really wasn't until this recent pullback in 2020 where I had this another mass explosion um, in issuance and in issuers in the product. Um, and with that, really, it just expanded the opportunity set. It got other participants in the market. Uh, more interested in the product. Um, the one thing I, I haven't mentioned with converts, which is very different than say like loans and, and different types of uh, securities that that you know that, that require different types of trading and and, and and different types of settlement, converts are QCIP traded bonds. And because their characteristics are so different, you do have transient investors. When we looked back at that curve that you showed, you have transient investors in this marketplace that, based on those metrics, will get involved. So as you get into that fixed income part of the curve, like you will have fixed income investors or fixed income mutual fund managers buy convertible bonds because it fits within their mandates, right? As you move up, yeah. the, up the curve and the bonds become more equity-like, you'll have equity income funds buy, buy into convertibles. So along the curve, there are different pockets of liquidity, not just traditional convertible investor. And obviously, as you go down to that left, you get into that distress part, you got that crossover credit and distress investor that comes through. Um, and that's just a team of lawyers. Yeah. <laughs> They're the smart money with a team of lawyers behind them, right? Um, so yeah, so, so you, when we talked last, you know, the market was kind of the broader market, not just not just what converts now, we're talking about the oh, yeah. broader market, right? We were talking at the height of the sell-off of equities and credit, right? And, and I was telling you, like, look, you know, I saw this before. I saw this before in 2000. And I don't think this is over right now. I don't think we're through this. We're in this lull in the middle of August that you could potentially have a revisiting. But the opportunity in converts expanded so drastically where 
not only the opportunity set, the names, the amount of names you could look at, but slight little dislocation occurred in one part of the market of a lot of these high valued equities that were high, higher valued last year, where the stocks have now come down 60, 70, 80% from their highs, right? Huge reductions in, 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 uh, in equity prices. Um, but, you know, you still had like a $10 billion market cap converts the only debt on the balance sheet. Um, they still had most of the cash that they raised. And if you look at kind of the burn down of it, like how they get to the end, to the current, they still have the ability to pay that off, even with the current metrics on the company. Right. So there was a lot of interest and they're still out there. There are a lot of these interesting opportunities to buy these credits um, where you can't access another market. So you just don't have debt in those markets. You access these credits of equities that have been just pushed down to such a low level. And, and I say it was it, I feel it's very similar to what I saw back then. The only difference is that we weren't in that same like financial crisis. Right. This is more of a. This is more of a kind of like we have the economy has to kind of correct from all of these things that occurred over the last two years. This kind of this this environment that we were like unexpectedly were put in through COVID and on the back end of it, adjusting to the liquidity that was put into the market, the, the, the moves that the Fed has had to make. Um, and it's just created this opportunity where these bonds, there was there's such a, a, I guess, a larger amount of bonds represented in this fixed income area where they're naturally are being sold by the more equity-like guys who like the equity sensitivity, um, not quite yet, yet in the distressed area, that it becomes a lot of value, good value, You're buying really cheap credit, and they're basically valuing the options for nothing. So if you're an options guy, right, and you're looking at, you know, a 90-day option or, 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 or you know, a, yeah. a Snapchat or, 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 or you know, um, a Datadog, right, stuff like that, you, you look at these 90-day options, like they're implying 16 70%. Right. But sometimes and I'm saying these particular things, but sometimes you can option, you can access this option within the convertible structure at a 30 vol rate or a 40 vol rate. And now you're talking about three and four years out. Like, where are you going to find a three and four year option? You're not unless you have some some banker write it for you, which is going to obviously not be priced properly. Right. So it, it's really become an incredible opportunity in the market. And it's still there. Right. Yes. We've had a rally from those bottoms. But there's kind of that sense in the marketplace that, you know, people may be away. September may bring different things. And you need to really look forward that, you know, we're still at these high inflation rates, even though the, the trajectory is going in the right way. Um, we're starting to see some corporate layoffs at the higher level. Right. Mm -hmm. um, not more broadly in the economy yet. And that's kind of the that's kind yeah. of the, the, the opposing type factors we're seeing is, you know, uh, combination of what, where rates are, what, what inflation is doing, and where employment is. Um, but there are a lot of mixed signals coming along, right? And I would just say that looking where to invest a dollar today, it's very difficult, right? I, how do I buy an equity right here, right now, after this run we've seen in the shorter term, where we don't know what the longer term or even several quarters out looks like? Um, you know, a lot of high yield debt is tightened to a point where I, like I speak to some of the high yield managers and they're like, yeah. well, yeah. It gets caught a lot, very quick, very far. Yeah. Right? But now you have this other product, which kind of has this hybrid of both. You have that credit tilt to it with an equity option, where even if you do push back, you may do have another, you know, say 10% drawdown in the equity markets from here. You're going to be very cushioned through the product, right? Mm -hmm. But you're kind of poising yourself to be participatory or participate in the longer term 
you know, uh, in in the longer term move in the marketplace where it eventually gets back on track or there there's eventually a point where, you know, equities can, can move the trajectory higher. So, Paul, if the sell off from the beginning of this year, let's say January to June, had three characteristics across all asset classes, which is rising risk free interest rates due to the Fed and other central banks and then widening credit spreads and then widening equity risk premium, basically lower equity valuations. Which of those three was your greatest enemy going into, or the, the greatest enemy of the convertible bond community, let's put it that way, going into June? And then which of those factors has been the greatest ballast higher over the past two months? Yeah. So it's interesting enough that because of the types of companies that came to the marketplace over the last two years, they tended to trade at a higher P level. Right or or just just a higher valuation or multiple of revenue or, or price sales. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I would say the greatest enemy to the broader market was the devaluation in these type of companies. The the basically the lack of interest in non you know rev, uh, non cash producing companies that that was kind of the overall theme in the equity markets, right? Because that's the part of the market that most got hit, and that was largely represented in our marketplace. So the underlying equities of converts did underperform, say, the S&P and the NASDAQ in this period, right? Um, what helped us were the credits and balance sheets, right? Because eventually when that stock went down enough, those credits start to hold up because you start looking at these, these market caps, you start looking at the balance sheet. I mean, a lot of these companies issue with zero interest, zero coupon bonds at a premium. So... Even if the bond is trading 80 cents in the note, there's zero interest expense for them over the next four years. And so they have great technology. They have great companies. They have great growth prospects. And even if you brought those down and you, and you, you, know, you hammer them in the current market condition, you cut them, um, you see your way through to a back end where, okay, the company will exist and the, it's really up to the market. One, it's up to them to grow into some of their valuation. But the market has discounted this valuation so much that as you start seeing green shoots to the back end, as you see the Fed kind of start to back off, what are the first things that are going to move? Like you tell me, what equities are going to move first? It's not, you know, it's going to be those type of equities that people go back to. They go back to growth. They go back to integrate in, in innovation. So that really sets the product up for the next two, three years out to really, you know, outperform you know, broader credit markets, say, because I'm looking at this as a credit instrument to really outperform broader credit markets. Um, so what initially was the, I guess, the the the, the hit to the market or the, or the downfall of the market is now becoming a really big opportunity set, right? Right. And what point, you know, so you manage a fund that invests in these convertible securities. How do you view your role as I'm going to make sure that I have the best baskets of securities on a quantitative basis, whereas, you know, Joe Schmo or Jack Farley or whoever who's buying uh, uh, convertible bonds, like they're not going to be looking and paying attention to these things with as much rigor and attention as me. Or do you view it as you're sort of picking styles as you're, you're less so a convertible bond investor and you're more of a sort of growth equity investor? Because just it sounds like based on the composition of the companies, uh, that is a, a lot of the sectors that the, the companies are are involved in. See, I, I love the instrument for what it is, and that's what I'm investing in. I'm investing in the securities and the credits, right? And the securities are the most brilliant thing. And that's what people like. It's hard to to get that out there that put your, putting a dollar in a convertible bond at a discount 
you're going to make money. We don't know how much, but you're going to make money, barring the default, you're going to make money, right? Whether it's a positive, it's going to be a positive yield and you have that potential for an outsize, upsize return, right? And the key to investing over time, right, is losing less in the downturns, losing less on any one investment, um, but participating in the in the upside and growth over time. Um, so what I'm looking for is a structure, right? The structure where I can put a dollar in, into the marketplace may have two to three points of downside in the shorter term, but then my upside is seven to eight points, right? So the asymmetry, there's a positive asymmetry in that investment. And then two is that credit perspective, right? Because that makes you avoid that really big drawdown, right? That really big drawdown. So if I buy something and something drastically changes within the credit, I'm not afraid to sell that. If the market changed, something changed. I'm not afraid to move that out of the portfolio, really, because that sweet spot is kind of finding those securities with that best, say, positive asymmetry. So you're basically sourcing out of the money stocks and out of the money options through that fixed income instrument. And it's so powerful in a recovery to have that combination of both credit and equity pushing together, right? And that's what that creates that really interesting portfolio um, for my investors, right? So the other key to it really is like, when do you leave an investment? And, and, yeah. and part of, because cost converts can morph into an equity product, like that risk of that security no longer has the traits that your investor wants. So as it migrates up the curve and you have those bonds that trade with a higher equity value, a fixed income convert guy will move out of that security because the asymmetry is no longer there. Right now you're solely dependent on that stock to work to go higher, right? So again, the type of investors, uh, the, the, the wealthy individual who wants market exposure, right? But doesn't want to buy straight equities and, and may not find the credit opportunities they want, you can utilize like that discount convertible product to get exposure to the market with markets, protecting your principal, but setting yourself up for outer size returns in the, in, in the future. So it starts with the structure. We look at the credit very deeply, um, credit team here. And most and, and most people investing this part of line really have to, part of the curve, really have to have the lens on, on credit investing. And then the third is that equity option. Like, can there be a recovery in this equity to give me that more outsized return. It's not just that fixed yield to maturity, right? Because that's the kicker there. It's getting that growth piece to kick in over the life of the, of the bond, right? So if it's a shorter dated option, one year, one year and a half out, maybe that doesn't have the interest that you want it. Maybe I'm not going to be able to get to that point where that equity option kicks in. But when you're looking at three and four years out, well, look, that's that's pretty short for the company, meaning that that, that bond floor is going to hold. Three-year paper of, of a company that you can analyze the credit that, that floor will hold, so your downside will hold. But now you have three years post this current market environment to participate in the equity. And again, a lot of them have come down pretty hard, just in the broader market as well as in our market. Um, so it's, uh, it, it's, it, it, it's, a, it's a great opportunity in this part of the curve. And uh, just currently, what the market is giving us, um, it's giving us excess opportunity to not only invest in like discounted credits, but also discounted volatility. Mm. Yes. The last time we spoke in June, I would say you were somewhere on, on the spectrum from bearish uh, to bullish. I would say you were pretty bullish. What is your outlook right now? Yeah. So look, we've came a long way in a short period of time in a pretty low volume marketplace where a lot of people are waiting for the next signal. Um, 
I would say in general, like now I was very bullish then for the simple fact that the opportunity set was just screaming at me, right? It was like, okay, there's so many things that we can buy right here um, that make a lot of sense over the course of, of time. Um, I would say now I'm just a little more cautious on the potential of what's going to go on in the next couple of months as we get more data coming out. Um, you know, the markets move at a very rapid pace, um, whether it's because of how it's made up these days through algorithmic trading and, and passive investment styles. Um, but I would say I'm, I'm just a little bit cautious right now on, on, on what the broader market's going to do. But when I still look at my portfolio, uh, the nice part about active management within this type of structure is that you can naturally reduce your risk and really focus back on the part of the curve, you know, based on movements in the bonds, right? Because if if you don't actively manage it, um, you you know, you buy a bond at 80, I mean, that could be at 140 in a couple of months and trading one for one with the stock. And therefore, your volatility is going to pick up and a pullback comes in the market and you're going to draw down just as much as the broader market did. Right. So actively managing the part of the curve you're in is very critical um, to keeping that lower delta profile, lower vol profile um, within a portfolio. Um, but uh, but in saying that, it's the opportunity still it, it ebbs and flows. Right. Even through this earnings season, several names have just drawn right back down into that, that sweet spot um, and other names have moved up and out. So the opportunity set is continually refreshing itself. But it's still, you know, over 55% of this market is on that discount level, right? Right. And, and I think something you asked me at the other point, too, is, you know, hey, what about the busted part of the market? People like to know about busted convertibles, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the thing I came back to is, like, I know people love to use that name. But, like, in that part of the market, I would say, like, busted implies the option has no value. I just think now, because of the extreme moves in these equities, that that option does have a lot of value. That the volatility in these underlines were so high that even though people like you know are not really valuing that, it's the hidden part. It's that hidden gem within these discount securities is to get access to that option. So yes, people will continue to call it busted converts when the bonds are trading with a high premium or out of the money option. But I think that's part of the the uh, I think the attractiveness of of that part of the market is the fact that people may not be valuing that option too much, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, historically, there's always been, you know, those parts of the market, the busted part, the balanced part, and, 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 the, and the equity parts. I mean, there's a lot of busted equities, just IPOs. And exactly it. Exactly it. Exactly it. There's busted equities, too, just that are in different forms. Right? Yeah. In different forms. Right? Yeah. Uh, um, Paul, so single stock volatility, let's say on, I don't know, DraftKings, has been very high. Uh, Carvana, these sorts of names, even though the VIX and the broader index has not seen as high levels of volatility. But the move index, the volatility in bonds, treasury bonds, notes, bills, very, very high. And you said the duration of the average convertible bond is 2.2 years. And I'm thinking the two-year treasury note is bouncing around 25 basis points day after day. Are you seeing a lot of volatility just in the fixed income space? Not leaving aside the equity vol. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, as when you know, as the market is trying to find its its floor and it's trying to find you know how to price assets in general, there is volatility within the fixed income space, and there's there's volatility in our space too. Um, you know, it, it's a natural market where there's you know, there's buyers and sellers at every point, and really, you know, the 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 desks that we transact with, right? It's an over the counter market. Didn't mention that it's very over the counter market. Uh, most of the, the large banks do uh, transact in it. 
But those desks have to find the next interested buyer, which could cause volatility pockets. But, you know, as you're saying, like, you know, as, as, as you know, the two-year treasury is moving, you know, equities are moving in, in conversely to that, right? And, and, and that's creating like just different pricing valuations for converts, right? Because as the equities are, are rallying, um, credits have kind of stabilized. Um, and at the same point, the reverse occurs, you know, um, I, I'm just thinking going forward, maybe you don't hit that depth that we were at in June, mm-hmm. right? At least in the near term where floors were put in and a lot of interested buyers step into the marketplace. Um, and, 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 you know, in any of these, you know, historically, in any of these type of, you know, volatility or drawbacks in the broader market, you know, you have that move lower. And once you get one of those rallies, right, you almost get that FOMO that goes on that when you get that pullback again, you'll get investors to get interested. You'll get investors to jump in and, and, and make allocations or, or pick up paper at, at lower levels than where they're currently traded today. Um, but yeah, so so let's say like the, the average duration is 2.2 years. Obviously, some of the more fixed income securities maybe have a 3, 3, 3.2, 3.3 year type duration profile. But net net, it's pretty darn short. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, 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 you know, it, it, uh, it it's going to move around with broader markets. I mean, the, the pricing's going to move around with broader markets. Um, but, uh, you know, that's it. Paul, in June, you said that 65% of the bond market was convertible bond was trading below par. Now that we've had this pretty significant rally over the past two months, what is that now? Yeah, I think it's around 55% now, like 10% of it moved up. And like below par is 99, 98 or so. But, uh, you know, I think everything kind of moved up a level. Right, the yields have tightened just a level. Um, when you're talking like four to five points, bonds have moved up over the floor. And you saw that in the high yield markets as well, right? Right across credit markets. Um, so yeah, so there's still a large opportunity set. It's still large, you know, relative to historics, um, and it's just like a very advantageous part of the curve. And uh, Paul, what's something that you know when you look at a convertible bond, something you see that you say, no, no, we're not, we're not going to do this deal. I'm not going to buy it. What are red flags you look for? Yeah, look, um, most convertible bonds have all kind of the indenture protections you need. It's not like some of these markets where you get covenant light and, light and the sorts. Um, you have all types of protections written within. Um, what I don't like in some of the, I guess, some of the issuers or those are like we have some pre-revenue issuers. I won't touch that kind of stuff. Um, you have yeah. issuers that are that are like are too young to have an operating history or there's an issue in management. Um, yeah. So, so there's a lot of that where you have to look through these securities and, and because the proposition of asymmetry is held up through credit, if you can't define the credit and if you're just basically purely investing on a story, right. A, A market cap with a story that can really end badly for you. Now I'm not saying that they haven't been successful over the years. Right. Um, and I'll, I'll pull out a name for you, which was one of the bigger issuers in, in converts um, at a time where the company almost folded. And it's Tesla. Everyone loves Tesla. You know, Tesla survived based on issuing convertible debt. And there was that point where, you know, Elon was going a little sideways and and and, and, and they were starting to build a tent to, to produce cars in, in, uh, in Fremont, California. Um yeah. And they come to the convertible market and they raised the capital they needed to get through the short term. Uh, Tesla, I think, had about five different convertibles in the point of their life. And, uh, and, uh, and really with that, 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 that 
bridge them to profitability. Now, it's a different entity in the fact that this company had a whole different following behind it. But at that point, it was a story. And initially, I kind of passed on it until there was more viability within it. So they had bonds that were trading right where we have bonds trading today in the 80s and the 70s, right? And then once the equity story started to play out and they started producing cars and they hit profitability several quarters into that, stocks started to move. And these bonds that were trading in the 80s, 110, 120, I mean, their bonds trading at $1,200, the last Tesla bond out there. It's a very, very small amount, but there was a, such a massive return in those securities um, by funding Elon Musk in that period, right? So he was a big user of the product. And it, you know, you can say that at that period, it was the lifeline Tesla needed to grow. Um, no straight debt market was, was, was blending to, to Elon Musk and Tesla at that point. But the convert market, given the fact they saw that four to five year option I could buy right here, right now, right? On a company that's pretty darn innovative, but a great product and a strong leader um, that worked for them, right? That worked for a class of investors, right? But I tend to like to see, you know, profitability. I tend to like to see balance sheets that I can see through to the to the, to the the endpoint and, and see them being able to pay back or companies being able to pay back this debt. Um, because again, like, the typical investor in this part of the curve doesn't want to lose money. They want to just kind of be in the marketplace um, with that set return, but the potential for that outside return. Paul, what do you think is the greatest risk for your side of the market going forward? Is it widening credit spreads? Is it defaults or is it falling equity values or something else? Yeah. So look, I mean, it's a combination. That's a perfect storm. You know, falling equity values and, and, and defaults increasing, right? That's a perfect storm for any market, right? All markets. Um, you know, th that that would be, I would say, like, would overall, you know, credit markets in general are, are fearful of continued widening spreads and, and equity selling off to a point where it just puts additional pressure on, on, on capital structures, right? So that would be the same for the convertible market. Um, but, you know, as I said, there's a... Uh, there's a heck of an opportunity. And I think what we're seeing is just more interest, interest, say, from investors, allocators at the product, given kind of the benefits it can provide um, in a current uncertain volatile market, right? Again, you're getting equity exposure um, through a fixed income instrument. So at least there's a floor to the loss, but you have this really strong potential or ability to, uh, to, to, to participate in the upside uh, when and if the stock moves higher, right? Yeah, Paul, talk to me about the floors because if if you hold all convertible bonds to maturity, the floor is 100 unless it defaults or there's some sort of restructuring. If you are trading things mark to market and the company does something you don't like, you can sell it. Perhaps you would sell it you know, at a lower level. Um, you, know, you mentioned to me before that you've never had a default and you've said on this call that, you know, the defaults historically were at like 1% for convertible bonds. Why, how did you avoid defaults? Were there times when you had your fund held a security and then you sold it uh, perhaps at a loss, but then it later defaulted and you, you just got out at the right time. And um, yeah, how, how sensitive, you know, you, you based on this call, you sort sort of view it as, you know, I mean, you said a floor is something that it can't go below, but it, it can go below if there is a default, right? Correct. Correct. And that's why it's, again, uh, 
investing in the credit and continually monitoring that credit is very important. Um, so having a disciplined approach where you learn where to sell, whether it's working, whether it's not, has really allowed us to avoid those really deep drawdowns on individual securities. And I would say a great example was 2015, right? When you had really high volatile energy prices where the price of oil went from $100 a barrel to $20 a barrel. And you had a lot of names like Weatherford and Chesapeake with convertible debt. That was a oh, good balance sheet, you know, company, uh, you know, producing a lot of oil, revenues coming in, cash coming in, um, and they're continually growing. But then when you started looking at the, the cost of production relative to the price, the, the dropping trajectory of the of underlying uh, price of oil, a barrel of oil, um, numbers didn't start to work anymore. And as you started going deeper, $30, $20. Like there's no sign, you know, to, 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 the, to the back end of this. So when those type of events occur and you're staying on top of what's happening, you're going to, you know, that's when you rebound and say, you know what, this floor won't hold. And you're right. The floor does move down, but it takes time for it to kind of really develop to a distressed situation. It's not overnight, right? There's a negative headline. There's a, that's where it can, you know, it takes the kind of professional look at the credit and, and just determine that this is really not worthy for investment anymore. And you move out of those type of situations. I mean, it's very successfully moved out of a lot of those oil names in that period. Um, you know, and, and, and you know, it, it, unfortunately, in this latest, you know, move higher in, in the energy space, there's very little representation in our market there mm -hmm. at this point. So it wasn't something that, you know, convertible investors had access to. But I'm assuming most, uh, you know, most debt investors had access to that through high yield or other types of credits. So, Paul, how much attention do you pay to the Federal Reserve? You know, now the Fed funds rate is uh, 225 basis points, projected based on the interest rate futures market to be somewhere around 350 basis points by the end of the year. On the face of it, if you buy a convertible bond of a company that's growing, it's profitable. On the face of it, you know, interest rates at 225 versus 250, it shouldn't really make a difference, but we see that it does. And, you know, days where the two-year yield spikes higher are days when growth companies typically have sold off, at least this year. So how are you thinking about that as a risk? How much attention are you paying to the Federal Reserve? Is it sort of like a professional hobby of yours or, or do you think it, it actually, you know, really is driving a significant part of the price action of, of your book that you're managing for investors? Yeah. So look, historically, if you look back in periods uh, where interest rates have risen, convertibles have outperformed other fixed income asset classes. Um, because reason, of low duration? Sorry? Because of low duration? Well, not only because of low duration, because in those periods, equities tend to, to, to be doing better, right? Because that's a point where they're trying to slow down the economy. Equities tend to start moving higher. So Initially, in this, this front end of, of this rate move, there's more of a shock and equities are repricing themselves. But I think as we see through the back end of, you know, as we start seeing to the back end, to the end of this rate cycle, you're going to have a revaluation on equities that would probably drive convertible valuations to a higher level. But the fixed income market is still held back from the pure spread situation. Right? Yeah. So that you know, stable into improving environment in, 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 in the market or the, the, the rate, rise of rates within the marketplace um, will tend to be accompanied by that, that rise in equities. Now, again, right now, we're not seeing that. But I think as the full cycle goes through, we're going to have that back end, uh, you know, back end benefit in our product.
Great. Well, Paul, it's been a total pleasure having you on, on Forward Guidance. Uh, thank you so much for, for sharing your insights. Yeah. Well, thanks, Jack. And I, I hope people can understand a little better what the convertible product's about. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it's a, uh, it's a unique asset class, um, but it's one that, you know, even though it is overlooked, it should be given more consideration um, by not only institutions, but also the retail side of things. And there's great ways to access it um, out there. Um, but uh, overall, you know, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a developed market and, uh, and one that's uh, very advantageous for, for investors all around. Yeah. Well, Paul, but let me let me ask you a question about that, just because, you know, we, we've been talking about, about it for an, over an hour. So I get it how a highly intelligent, disciplined, experienced investor such as yourself and as your team can uh, re- select specific securities that have a low default risk as you perceive it. And, you know, maybe they can do well when the equity and the, the call option attached is, is going to be cheap. But that, that is, you know, you, have to be, you said it's really not that complicated. It's not that complicated, but you you have to understand, you know, uh, an intermediate level of finance and you have to be actively managing and going through QSIPs, as you say. So, you know, the average retail investor, maybe, you know, an investor watching this program right now, if let's say they maybe buy Microsoft instead of buying Apple, like Warren Buffett, like Warren Buffett doesn't really have a huge edge over over them, in purely in terms of understanding the security. Now, over a long term, obviously that compounds. But you know, I'd like to, you know, your I'd like to think that you have a pretty massive edge, and you have a you have more you have a bigger edge over the retail investor buying convertible bonds than like Warren Buffett does buying stocks, right? Because stocks are kind of easy. So let me put it this way: Snapchat. Let me just throw a name out there, right? You can buy the stock today. It's going to be moving up and down all over the place. You can buy a convertible bond with a six and a half percent yield for four years. Okay, people know Snapchat; they know what they do. Uh, retail investors are buying that day and night. Now, in the next four years, Snapchat's right where it is today. You'll make six and a half percent, right? If that stock moves higher in these next four years, right, that bond could be trading right now at seventy-five. It'd be trading at one hundred and twenty-five, hundred thirty. You can technically outperform the stock over time with the convertible bond. So simplistically, getting away from all the credit and deep whatever, simplistically, if you look at certain names that you like to own or you want to own as a retail investor, a, there are a bundle of them, or a good, a good amount of them, that do have convertible debt that if you were to purchase, the asymmetry of the return is so much more beneficial. No, everyone loves the big score. You buy a stock at 12, it goes to 24, you sell it, you tell everybody about that. But- Nobody talks about the stock they bought at 12 and goes to two or 12 and goes to five, right? A portfolio of these type of names, like the Snapchats, the Ubers, the Lyfts, the, the Airbnbs, a, a portfolio of these type of names and no like names that people invest in, in equities, they, you know, retailers invest in equities. You don't, you know, if, if you believe that company is going to be around in four years, right, you can buy that piece of debt have a guaranteed return and the potential for a massive upside return, right? And it may not be as sexy as buying the stock, but it's a way to like preserve capital and have outside returns over a period of time or over, over say the four years right now. And mind you, just go to Snapchat. It was $70 12 months ago. Where's the stock? 14? Right. And we can argue with the, yeah, what, we can argue about the the valuation of it at any point, right? Anyone can can do an equity valuation, um, but as they work through their certain situations, 
Maybe that stock can go to 24 as the Fed starts. Maybe that stock can go to 30. Maybe the stock can go to five. If the stock's right. at five, you're still going to get your seven and a half percent. Paul, yeah, you're arguing on the, the beta, and I think you've made a, done a really good job of arguing that. I'm arguing sort of on the alpha that I think there is more, you know, in, for investment managers, I'm for, sure. perhaps you can take this as a compliment, like earn the fee. Like if you're paying someone, you know, two, two and 20% to buy Apple, it, there's not that much edge there, but there are tons yeah. of things that can happen, idiosyncratic things with the snap convert where the a call option attached could be extremely undervalued. And you and your team, someone on your team would flag that to you and you would buy it because you're doing this all day, unlike retail investors who, you know, their, their job is not investing. Um, and likewise, you know, something really weird happened and there's a credit thing and you sold it and you got out of it, then maybe the retail investor wouldn't. So do you, would you agree or disagree that there is more alpha than in the equity market for, for sort of institutional? Yeah, there's, yeah, there's absolutely more alpha to be had, right? There's more alpha to be had in the product, um, just given the nuances of how it works, right? In the fact that, again, it's a credit instrument with the equity option and the payoffs are different at any any, any point of where the equity is trading and where the credit is trading. And you know, to access that alpha, it's just, it's, yeah, you're right. It's not just a pure beta play going long with something. It's finding those nuanced securities where it's mispriced on the credit side. Mm-hmm. It's mispriced on the, on the volatility side. And that, you know, purchasing that, you know, on behalf of a client or just in general gives you an edge up on, on the broader market because you're getting it, you're getting exposure through a security um, that's not only just a discount in price, but a discount in valuation, right. right? And that's identifying, that's what we're doing here is we're identifying those valuation discounts uh, that are more advantageous for the client base. Wonderful. Paul, my final question for you, I promise, is what is the most frequent mistake you think investors make when investing in convertible bonds? The most frequent mistake, uh, that's interesting. Or the most costly mistake, you pick. Well, look, um, it tends to be as, uh, you know, getting out too early is the most frequent mistake on the upside where, you know, strategically, you know, if you think you hit it, like strategically, if the bond gets to a certain level, you know, 120, 130, you move out of that security and then you have a Tesla-like scenario where it just keeps going, right? And strategically, and on the downside, the biggest mistake is holding on to that loser too long, looking for that turnaround. Right, because you can hit points where there's no natural investors anymore, and the bond can just drop down till you find that credit crossover investor. So really protecting your capital um, on the downside and, and and not falling in love with uh, the fact that okay, you made an investment, you may have made you know it looked like the right decision at that point of investment, but as things change, not reevaluating that and not taking action because the bond is lower. It's not it's not the case. This is a portfolio of securities. Right. It's a portfolio of securities that you're looking to make an ultimate return on. And you're not going to get everyone right all the time. Um, you know, as a professional money manager, knowing when to cut that loss and just moving on to something else makes a lot more sense on the downside. Um, so those are the kind of the, the two mistakes that occur in our marketplace. Um, you know, but, uh, but yeah, I think that could happen in any market, truthfully. Right. Yeah, definitely. Well, Paul, thanks again. Yeah. Thanks, Jack. It's been great being on here with you. There is something that you need to be doing right now, and that is reading the BlockWorks daily newsletter. For top market insights and the latest in crypto news, you have to subscribe to the BlockWorks daily newsletter, and you can do so by clicking on the link in the description to this video 
or by visiting blockworks.co forward slash newsletter.